it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon silence crippling confusion and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers your path to financial freedom starts now all right folks so welcome to investing for beginners podcast this is episode 157 Tonight, Andrew and I are going to return to the well, and we're going to answer some listener questions. we got some more great ones, and we thought we would take some time and answer those for you guys on the air. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and read the first question. So I have two whom it may concern. I am currently beginning to understand slash calculate ratios recommended by Andrew, such as PE, PS, and PB, i.e. price to earnings, price to sales, and price to book. Where I am caught up is in reference to the idea that one of these right ratios might carry more importance than another. For example, the canopy, the company Canopy Growth Company, uh, CGC, has a current PE of zero and a PS of 18, assuming most likely due to new slash growing company. I know that these are not normal numbers. For example, JP Morgan or JPM has a PE of 11.16, a PS of 2.06, and a price to book of 1.05. That indicates a discount price and a great buy. Returning to CGC, their price-to-book ratio is currently 1.76, again indicating a sort of sale. I know this is not a great example of the normal PE and PS ratios. However, I found it a great example of prioritizing with ratios actually matter. Please let me know if there are any analysis slash information you can provide into weight given to these ratios and which one might take priority. And how are these affected by new companies? Thank you, Ethan. Andrew, what are your thoughts on Ethan's question? Yeah, it's a very good one. So the whole point of these 
price ratios is to try to get some context on the numbers. So there's not some magical Excel file anywhere out there that says, you know, if your PE is a 12 and not a 13, then you're going to be golden. Obviously, the stock market isn't that. It's it's not some game with boundaries where you can just put in ingredients and get a magical result. So where these price ratios come into play is it tells me when a stock is very, very expensive compared to a lot of other different stocks. And so, you know, Ethan, you talk about here how you say that this isn't really a great example. I think it's maybe the perfect example to illustrate uh, where price ratios can be very helpful. Because as you said, company has a PE of zero and a price to sales of 18. Now, I I know this is one of the uh, marijuana stocks and I don't cover that industry. I don't research that industry. I just, I know from having seen some of the statistics around that industry that there is even today still very high valuations with that industry. Granted, it is a growth industry and there seems to be a lot of potential there, but there's just a lot of companies that don't have the financials to really back up the sorts of prices that they're commanding on Wall Street. And this is a perfect example. So Maybe what could be helpful here is let's compare Canopy's numbers to, let's say, the average stock market numbers. So let's start at price to sales. Basically, price to sales is trying to tell us how how expensive is the company related to how many sales they're bringing in. So when you if if you want a super quick accounting one hundred and one, sales are going to be sales and then you take away how much did those sales cost and then you end up with profits or earnings. So price to sales gives us that number at the top. Price to earnings will give us that number after all the expenses come out. If I'm selling some lemonade down on the street for a dollar and it costs me 75 cents to make that lemonade and you know buy the cups and, and put up some flyers for advertising well uh, i and you know if i sold one cup of lemonade that's $1 of $1 of sales 75 cents in expenses that leaves me with 25 cents of profit and so that would go into the earnings part that's price to earnings and again let's talk now let's talk about price to sales so canopy has a price to sales of 18 that's very very high the average Price of sales for the S and P five hundred in the market, it's somewhere between two to three, and that's not only the average today, but that's also been the average over the last decade and for several years longer than that. There's not much data going back when it comes to the price of sales, but that tends to be a general two to three is pretty average. So when we see a price to sales of 20 or 18, that's very close to 20. You're talking about a price to sales that's 10 times higher than the average. And so what that's going to imply is, is this a company that's going to grow 10 times higher than the average of a regular company? And then also, is it going to do it sustainably over the very long term? 
similar story with the price to earnings. When there's a price to earnings of zero, that kind of implies that this company probably is not making a profit. And so you're in a situation again as an investor. There's trust me, if you want to find a star or a company that's not turning a profit, you can do so. There's plenty to choose from. And so if you're going to play that game, you you want to make sure that you're very confident that you can figure out which companies are going to turn it around because negative earnings and not being able to turn a profit, that is a pretty common characteristic of growing companies. But at the same time, there's been so many other companies that have done so well for so long and have grown profits and earnings, dividends. They've done that for a very long time and have never had to be in a situation where they had these periods of negative earnings. So when I'm looking at price-based ratios like these, and you give the other example of JP Morgan, we have ratios that are very reasonable, you know, price earnings of 11, price of sales of two, price of book around one. So when I look at that, again, it's not saying that necessarily I want to buy it, but I like the range that those numbers are in. And when you're using these numbers, if you can look across the the universe of stocks, and if you find a number that's completely out of whack, like a price of sales that's 10 times higher than than the average company, well, then you better A, have a very good reason why this stock is trading that way. You know, is this stock obviously better by a factor of 10 than every other stock in the stock market? That better be like the best company in the world that we've ever seen, by the way. Or, you know, is there a possibility that Wall Street is abandoning all sorts of rationale and normal price consciousness to really get caught up in the excitement of a stock. And so these price ratios, regardless of whichever ones you're looking at, and we can go deeper into, you know, in what situations some ratios might be more pertinent than others. But, you know, in general, it, it really comes down to when some of these ratios get out of whack, a lot of times Wall Street could be just caught up in the emotions and the story behind the stock. And not to say that any one stock can't continue to be really exciting and great, but historically, if if you look at the different stories that have happened over history with these stocks, it's it's really a tale as old as time. And and things change, but things don't change at the same time. They stay s- so much the same. As an example, I mean, we love to talk about tulips. I I love that story. There was back in the 1600s a speculative bubble in that a tulip became so valuable that it became a single tulip bulb. Yes, like the flower became so valuable. It was as expensive as several years salary at one point and people were trading them and and you can just imagine the frenzy behind that. And with each subsequent period of prosperity and booms in business in that economy and in commerce and then that transfers over to the stock market eventually there's always been these stories of 
great innovation and great growth, but at the same time, great speculative bubbles that have eventually popped. And so whether it was the tulips in the 1600s or the Dutch sea company to follow that, and then that virus, if you will, transferred over to the South, to England with the South Sea company, and they had their stock go up in a bubble and then pop. And you've seen this with every period of booms. Uh, in the 1800s, it turned into rail, what they call railroad mania. And then it turned into mining company mania. And then in the roaring 20s before the Great Depression, they had all of the stocks then. And then it's just on and on and on. And then more recent history, we had the dot-com bubble. And that was catastrophic for people. So there's always growing companies and there's always stocks that trade at at absolutely absurd valuations. Having these price ratios to discipline you and kind of narrow your focus helps keep you away from a lot of these stocks that have been trouble for investors for so long. And so, you know, you can go down the dangerous road and teeter on the cliffs if that's how you want to invest your hard-earned money. Uh, For a lot of other reasonable, rational investors, um, we like to see the type of businesses that create cash flows and, and distribute those cash flows back to shareholders. And so that's why you can use ratios like these to, you know, maybe you sacrifice a home run, but have a lot more safety and stability. And that's what you'll tend to see when you look for stocks that have reasonable ratios, price to earnings, price to sales, and price to book. That's very well said. And I, I agree with 100% with what you're saying. And uh, to kind of tag along with what Andrew was was focusing on, one of the things that when you think about these price to ratios is think about how they are in relation to not only the stock market, but other companies in their industry or sector. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm going to pick on JP Morgan here because I use that for an example. One of the things that you'll notice if you look at PEs, those are all really air quote nice numbers to look at. And it would indicate that the company is undervalued. But because I spend a lot of time digging into financials for banks and insurance companies and things of that nature, generally those are pretty normal numbers for companies in that realm. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that banks in particular are fairly unfavored and they have been for a while, especially since 2007 to 2009, because they were blamed for the uh, great recession that we went through during that period. So because of that, banks tend to trade at lower multiples compared to other companies, i.e. the FANG stocks, Visa, MasterCard, Target, Walmart, Amazon, you, you could go on and on and on. So when you look at those companies, they appear to be undervalued or as you were putting it as a great buy, and they may or not be. And I guess one thing that I, I like to think about these ratios is to me, they're a sort of a screening tool to help you find companies that could could be undervalued that you could do more research on. And these are never, I never buy a company based on seeing a great PE or a great price to sales or a great price to book. Uh, it's all a combination of numbers that can help tell a story and tell you whether the company is 
undervalued, overvalued, fair valued, kind of what's going on. But again, it also has to be used in conjunction with the, the overall stock market like Andrew was referring to, but it also needs to be referred to as, by the sector. So if you look at uh, Canopy Growth Company, for example, again, I, like Andrew, I know almost nothing about the marijuana industry or the companies. And so it's not something I can speak intelligently on, but I guess what I would recommend you do is look at the industry. There are going to be websites that will tell you the financial history of that industry. And you'll be able to see over the last five, 10 years, depending on what part of the country in the world uh, these companies have been able to perform in, it's going to give you an idea of what some of those ratios have indicated for those companies. And now because it's a new industry, you're probably going to see everything all over the map. You're going to see negatives. You're going to see a lot of zeros. You're probably going to see some numbers that are monstrously huge. Uh, depending on the popularity of the company, you may see a PE that may have, you know, 75 because it's for whatever reason it's, it's caught on in a, in a niche and it, the p- price has been bid up, but it's only earning a dollar a year or something crazy like that. So uh, you just never know. But I think I would caution you on getting super excited. If you see some of these are super low and use this as a, as a starting point to start to do some more research to find out as, as much as you can about the company and as much as you can about the industry. And like Andrew was saying, comparing it to the rest of the stock market is, is a great way as well because it can give you guidelines. It can give you a historical context of where some of those numbers are sitting. And those are all things that can go a long ways towards helping you predict and anticipate what will happen with the company in the future. And the more you read about the company and the more you read about the industry, you're going to learn more and more about that company and what it's doing, how well it's doing, and and also how not so well it's doing. And those are all great things to know. You can't just look for all the good stuff. We've got to look for the bad stuff, too. Uh, We have to think of ourselves as Sherlock Holmes. We're investigating and trying to find clues that will give us answers to whatever the mystery is might be that we're trying to solve. And in this case, we're trying to decide whether Canopy Growth, for example, is a company that might be interesting to invest in. And I think it's a great path we're going down, Ethan, and I encourage you to keep going down this path and and to keep asking these good questions and and trying to dig in and, and find out as much as you can about the company and the numbers, because that will do you in good stead as you go forward. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. Is my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. 
Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily, wherever you cast your pod. Yeah, definitely. Good question. So the next one here. Hello, Andrew. I'm new to the stock market and struggle with reading company annual reports and analysis of the ratios. I'm in England, Great Britain, and I guess our British systems are a little different to America. However, I need to learn how to get information about companies and how to evaluate it to decide which ones to invest in. He says, the investing books you mentioned were published decades ago. Are they still relevant in 2020 and for the future? Sincerely, Mike. In a word, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, bo- the books that we recommended uh, a while ago, yes, they are still relevant in 2020 and for the future. Uh, some of those lessons that you can learn from Ben Graham, for example, uh, in the intelligent investor, those are timeless. Uh, those are things that 
those are lessons that you can continue using to this day. Uh, some of the terminology may change a little bit, but the basic idea of trying to find companies that are selling at a discount to their intrinsic value uh, that have long-term growth potential, have developed a moat, these are all things that have been and are being used by investors in the stock market as we speak. And they will continue to be used long after you and I are here. And I just think that they're timeless. And I don't think that those kinds of ideas are ever going to go away. As long as Mr. Market is available and able to play with all of us in the stock market, uh, whether we're guys or girls, he's going to be there to give us deals. And as long as we're there to partake in those deals, we have a choice to make whether we think it's foolish or not foolish to buy at that particular time. And so those are things that have been passed down and handed down uh, through time. And there are so many great books out there uh, to read. And I think those are great places to start. And I'm going to be honest with you, Mike, when I first started doing this, it was hard for me to read the annual reports as well. They can be dry. uh, They can be boring. And if you're not a huge numbers person, it can be a little bit overwhelming. But what I would encourage you to do is try to, when you're reading through them, is try to find areas of the company that are going to be more interesting than others. For example, some of the legalese that you'll run into when you're talking about risk. Some of that stuff, you get, your eyes can just kind of gloss over. And if you think something is important, it'll jump out at you. Otherwise, it's going to be a lot of the same kinds of things over and over and over again. Reading through what management thinks about the company is a great stuff to do. Uh, reading through the financials is very helpful. And if you're not a big fan of calculating the ratios, there's a bazillion different websites out there that you can go to that will provide those for you so that you can do that in that way. And I just think that the more that you do this and the more that you spend time reading through some of those and also kind of give yourself a break. You don't have to blaze through one of these annual reports in a day. If it takes you a week to go through it, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's okay to do that. That's, that's happened to me at from time to time as well. There are certain ones that I try to read through that sometimes they can be a slog. I'm not going to lie, but it's, it's, it's important to me. And it also helps me learn more about the company. And the more that I read about the company, the more I understand it better and the easier it becomes. And so I would encourage you to, to keep at it. But uh, the list of books that we went through a little while ago in the archives, those are definitely, definitely, I would highly recommend all those books. Any of them are still going to be relevant. If you haven't already, I would recommend picking up my free ebook that is talked. It's it's announced on the, on the show all the time. That's literally what the book does is it breaks down these ratios that we've been talking about and gives you examples and, and shows you how to analyze based on those ratios um, outside of that, everything Dave said really makes a lot of sense. And if, if you find that these sorts of things are interesting to you and, and you know, you definitely want to know as much as you can about the stocks that you do end up owning and, you know, whether it's learning about the companies themselves or learning about different mindsets to have as an investor, learning about how the market works 
in general. I think those are all valuable things to do really for anybody when it comes to managing money because if if you're really real with yourself, either you have to pay somebody to to know what the general context is on the markets or you have to have that knowledge for yourself and at least have a general understanding yourself. Otherwise, when things happen like the coronavirus, for example, when the market crashed or back in 2008, 2009, similar story, the market crashed. It seemed like the world was going to end for investors looking at their portfolios. You know, if you don't have the context of that these types of things are normal, that the media is scaring you and over over dramatizing a lot of things, but that in general, being in the stock market is the right thing to do over the long term. If you don't have that knowledge, if you're if you're trying to outsource that or hire that away, that's great. But you know, it better be somebody that you trust, like the back of your hand, because these are very serious and important topics. And so, when you relate that to books that were published decades ago, those are actually probably the best books to read versus the book that came out yesterday or last year because a lot of the best authors like authors we've recommended like Benjamin Graham he had his book The Intelligent Investor Peter Lynch is a great guy i think anybody who's a beginner should pick up a couple of his books and read whether that's Beating the Street or One Up on Wall Street those are both super easy reads very very inspirational and very informative you know these are guys who were in the market for decades and so uh newsflash to be to have a deep understanding and wisdom you have to look over many decades because the market and the economy goes in these very long-term cycles and it's not it's not something where you can build a business on Monday and become a billionaire on Friday. That's just not how the world works. And so in the same token, the stock market is just the business world and it's just the ownership part of the business world. And so businesses take years and years and years to grow and businesses go through the different troubles that the industries will have. Let's take Facebook and Twitter, for example. For a while, social media was just a buzzword term, right? And it, it was not in any way a part of every everybody's life. And then Mark Zuckerberg came around and, and really changed and created an industry pretty much on his own. And then you had, you know, a lot of different competitors that we don't hear about because why would you hear about failures? So, you know, you had MySpace back in the day. You had Vine. Uh, was a social media platform that seemed to have a lot of promise and then just fizzled out. And so you fast forward to today, uh, you had Facebook and on Twitter IPO, what seems like you know forever ago, but it was really in the grand scheme of things, I think it was three, four, five years ago, something like that. And so you know, since then, now we have these companies really struggling with how are they how do they police their content essentially and so you have 
pressure from the left and pressure from the right, and and none of them think that Facebook is doing a good job, and and so they're in a situation where they're under a lot of turbulence, and so you've had an industry that has gone from nothing to becoming a baby to growing really really fast to being from not profitable at all to profitable and to now having issues that a lot of investors did not foresee because now there there's a boycott now that's happening starting in July uh and it's because of politics and the way things have gone and so you know there's a lot of to make a short story, it's super, super long, and, and try to make it short again. There's there's a lot of things that happen over the life of a company, of an industry, of an economy. And so you really need to stretch out and think about the decades rather than just the days or the weeks. And a lot of the good investing books that are classics that have stood the test of time do take those kind of long-term mindsets because things like the newest technologies of today, there's always been newest technologies of today. And if you read any good book that talks about the history of the stock market, like I mentioned on the last question that we answered, there's always been these huge innovations. And it turns out that if you look at a lot of the most successful investors, they weren't necessarily the first ones to get into these great companies, but they tended to be there, quote unquote, too late, and then just continued to to ride the wave. And so that seems to be a, a recurring theme as you look over the years at the different businesses and huge innovations in these huge new growing industries. I mean, if we think the, the innovations of today are big, I do think investors felt when the automobile was invented, you know, and for many decades after it was invented, it was a huge part and still is a huge part of American culture. And plenty of money has been made along the interim. And now we have this industry that's maybe maturing. And then now there's a new technology with Tesla that's coming in and completely disrupting it. So again, there's just all these forces and they happen sometimes slow, sometimes fast, but it's a very, very long-term thing when it comes to the business world and investing. And so really, I, I don't remember exactly where I heard this. It might have been Farnham Street, Dave, uh, that blog we've been obsessing about lately. But yes, they. I think he mentioned... You already know what I'm going to say, don't you? He, yeah. he says that... The books that are still popular today that were written decades ago, they're still popular because they have stood the test of time and that's really where you're going to get the best gems. So, you know, I could take 10 books just like you could take 10 companies today. We don't know how how they're going to be 10 years from now. I bet you have the 10 books you took that you read that were released last month. Nine of them would be trash in a year. And so really the, the one that's good is the one that's going to continue to be referred to and people are going to continue to buy and recommend to their friends. And those are the ones that stand the test of time. And those are the ones you need to be reading, uh, even if they don't know what the internet is because they know what business is. And the more you learn about history, you'll realize that business is business and business. And it's always been very, very similar and it's always been the same. And so 
the principles behind it and the wisdom behind it has been true and I believe will continue to be true for a very, very long time. Hey you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Yeah, that's. I agree with you. The uh, the article that he's referring to is uh, written by uh, Shane at Farnham Street, and he was referring to uh, books that instead of reading what's on the top ten list, he said read books that were written thirty, forty, fifty years ago. And the reason why they're still popular now is because, as Andrew was saying, the the information in in them is timeless, and. Another thing that I guess I would recommend for Mike to think about too is if some of these books are a little bit hard for you to read, uh, a couple things. Number one, there's nothing wrong with re- listening to them. Uh, Audible has a great selection of all of these books available to you for to listen to. And that's actually something that I do with the intelligent investor. Every year I listen to the intelligent investor. Uh, it's the beginning of the year. It's just something that I got into a habit doing a few years ago. And so every year I re-listen to it every year. And you always learn something new when you do something like that. And it also helps me continue to read other things so I can do that while I'm doing stuff. And it just kind of keeps my brain occupied, but it also helps me learn things, but it also can help. Sometimes, sometimes these books may be not appealing to people, but if you listen to them, it might be a little more entertaining and you can get more out of it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to throw at you too is, and this is something that Shane mentioned in this article that Andrew and I were talking about, there's nothing wrong with not finishing the book or picking different parts of the book and reading through those parts and then other parts that maybe aren't holding your interest. There's nothing wrong with not not reading those. We have been taught uh, since we were little kids that you got to read a book from beginning to end. And I'll be honest with you, when I first started getting into this and discovered that, hey, I don't have to read the whole book, I was kind of flabbergasted uh, because that's not the way I grew up. I grew up having to finish, uh, you know, you start a book, you got to finish it. And truth be told, there's only two books in my life I've never finished, uh, Moby Dick and the other one, uh, Don Quixote. Uh, just, I couldn't do it. Just, uh, just couldn't do it. Moby Dick, when he was, talking about oil paintings i just i couldn't i no, we're done here i I had to stop and don quixote was just too weird so apparently i did not do enough drugs when i was younger and i couldn't follow that book but anyway uh that's just my two cents worth but i guess that would be i guess my thought on a a little tag on to what andrew was saying yeah i I think it's great that he's reading in general uh hopefully we didn't discourage him from that by uh yeah, I mean, exactly. Uh, right. But no, uh, I think reading's great. <laughs> yeah, I do too. There's so many ways to go about doing it. And I, I think sometimes people just get bogged down and I have to do it this way. But if there's so many different options available now, uh, whether you listen to audiobooks, whether you, I mean, there are people that do read them on YouTube. Uh, so there, I mean, there's just, there are different ways that you can go about doing it. And, uh, I would encourage you definitely to, continue to read because you can learn a ton by doing it that way all right so moving on from the reading uh we're going to talk uh so i got another question for you so andrew uh do you have any thoughts on viac which is viacom uh seems like a great value buy right now based on your teachings but didn't see it listed in your newsletter currently as a buy thanks kevin so andrew what's your thoughts on viacom okay so you know it's a 
always a hundred percent possible that there's a stock out there that's a good buy that I'm just on my radar at the time. But yeah, let's let's take a look at Viacom kind of on the air and just put some thoughts on it and maybe we can shed a little bit of light on there if people have been looking at the stock. So I pulled them up on Finviz and this is a company that's in the S&P 500. It's a $15 billion market cap. So that puts it, I wouldn't call it necessarily a small cap. It's it's a mid cap in my book. And so the, the dividend's really high. It's 4%. And the price to earnings is very low. It's at 5.46. Price to sales, 0.5. Price to book, 1.07. So I think, I think the, you might be thinking that I see a PE like that and my eyes jump out and I get really excited, but it's actually the other way around. I look at a PE like that. And when it's so low, I, I worry that there's something there that's, that's, that's troubling because you know, Wall Street can can really beat up some stocks unfairly, but um, when a stock really, really, really gets beat down like that, you tend to think that maybe there's there's some underlying issues there. So I think that's good to know based on these three price ratios. The company seems very, very cheap. Now let's try to figure out why. So then I'll pull up my next website here quickfs.net and look at some of their metrics that kind of pop up so all you gotta do you type in the ticker and click on the company and so they have similar price ratios pe 6.5 price to book 1.1 they have been growing revenue so that's good they've been growing eps that's also good um, so from this standpoint, actually, the company looks pretty decent. A 10% return on invested capital, return on equity, close to 25%. Those are all very, very good things. Now, I think the big question becomes, there's one more metric we can look at, and I'll get to that in a second. But the big, the big question is, what's the coronavirus impact, right? Because that's a question, unfortunately, you need to ask yourself at least for at least the probably for the rest of the year and and perhaps for longer i like to look at stocks as how is the coronavirus going to impact them and so if i believe that wall street thinks it's going to impact them more than i think then i think that can be a good value but at the same you know whether that's the case or not you still want to think about that so viacom just for people who aren't familiar their complete company name is Viacom CBS. So maybe that's where more of us understand what the company does. So obviously they own things like the CBS Sports Network, the CBS Channel, right? So they have segments, four segments, it looks like entertainment, cable networks, publishing, and local media. So, you know, just based off of that, you would think that the coronavirus should not hurt them because they still profit when people are at home consuming their content. But, you know, one thing you need to, you always want to take the thinking one step further. So while people will still probably be consuming their content, you have to understand if less businesses are spending on advertising, then 
that's going to be hard for a company like Viacom CBS because lower ratings means lower advertising uh, revenues. And that just kind of trickles down to a lot of the different media segments that the company might have. And so, you know, with CBS in general, I know that the, one of their big events is March Madness. And so with that not having happened, that probably will have a huge impact on their quarterly earnings, particularly if that advertising segment takes up a lot of their earnings. So I think I've talked long enough. Dave, what do you think? (laughs) Okay. Uh, So I liked a lot of the things that Andrew was talking about. So kind of maybe dig into the numbers a little bit to maybe put into context some of the things that the Andrew was referring to. So for example, at the end of the month of March, so the end of the quarter, uh, the stock price had dropped to $14 a share. So it was obviously one of the companies that had gotten smacked during the coronavirus smackdown that happened in the stock market. Just to kind of put that in context, at the end of the quarter for December, it was trading at $41, the quarter before that, $40, quarter before that, $49, and a quarter before that, $47. So quite a huge drop. So if you dig a little bit farther down, so as we look at a lot of the other numbers, if you look at the revenue for the quarter, it was down from the fourth quarter by quite a lot. But I don't know if that is more of a related to seasonality. It might be. So I can't speak to that part of it. But I can tell you that from the year ago quarter in March of 2019, it was down about 20%, I believe. And if you go farther down the income statement, for example, you can see that the earnings for the quarter were down almost four times from the previous year's quarter, which would lead to an earnings per share quite a bit less because actually the shares outstanding were almost identical from the, from the year ago quarter. So when you do all that math, if you will, you can see that the company kind of got smacked, but it also lost a lot of revenue. And I was looking at the earnings transcript and the, slideshow that they put along with that. And one of the things that they mentioned in there was a good portion of their revenue comes from advertising. And advertising, if you may or may not know, was really smacked hard during this last quarter because of the slowdowns with the coronavirus. People just weren't paying for advertising. They, they cut their budgets. They slashed budgets tremendously. And when if Viacom is making a lot of their money from advertising, then that obviously is going to hit them in the pocketbook pretty hard. And so that I think is something that kind of jumped out at me as I was looking through the numbers. Uh, the company as, as a whole, if you look at the historical averages, like Andrew was talking about, looks like a great company. It's done really well. All the, all the metrics are very nice. And, you know, the growing revenue is fantastic and the return on equity, return on assets, return on invested capital, all fantastic, all, all great stuff. And those are all things that bode well for the company going into the future. Uh, I guess I would be curious to see what will happen as we go farther into uh, the next quarter's earnings and see how that kind of all shakes out. Because I think in all reality, 
irregardless of whatever company that is going, the majority of them are really going to tell the tale, so to speak, in the next quarter or so. Uh, one thing I also wanted to mention is the debt to equity has gone up quite a bit. Uh, I did read that they did a couple of bond offerings during the last quarter to try to raise capital to help them through uh, the period. But that's something to keep an eye on as as the company goes forward. Uh, it's not outrageous. Uh, their debt to equity is 1.52, according to Guru Focus. So we're hitting all the all the financial websites on this one today. So uh, <laughs> those are some of my thoughts. Uh, Andrew, you got any other ideas? Yeah. So while you're on the topic of debt, because that's where I'm lasered in right now on their annual reports, does it show you the quarter numbers, uh, how much they earned roughly? Uh, I assume it was it, a loss, probably. Uh, the earnings? No, the earnings was actually positive, but it was about uh, $516 million. So it was pretty okay. low. So what I've been looking at when it comes to debt lately, because I mean, obviously you want the whole debt picture, debt to equity is a great ratio for that. But at the same time, you also want to know not everybody's debt is equal. So for the case of Viacom, they have, you can look in any company 10K and you can look at obligations and it will break down when certain debt is due at which time periods. So for Viacom, they have 4.8 billion due for 2020. And then for 2021 to 2022, it's at 12.2 billion. So that's quite a bit. And then it drops down for 2023 to 2024, they're around 7 billion. So you're looking at almost 5 billion that's due this year. And then 6 billion that's due for the next two years. So, you know, if, if they earned 500 million this quarter, if that continues for the rest of the year, that's only 2 billion. So they're going to be using our back of the napkin math. They're going to be two and a half billion short for this year. And then for next year and the following year, they would be 4 billion short per year. So that's not a good sign, obviously. Now, I think it would be kind of foolish to just project one quarter of coronavirus and say that that's going to be their entire results for for the future. I think somewhere of a mix between where they were and and where they were after the crisis and then maybe averaging between where they were before the crisis, where they were after and, and somewhere in the middle there. And then maybe comparing that to how much they owe and then I would take that and maybe look at some of their other competitors, maybe a, a company like Disney, who owns ABC and all those networks. You know, what what are the differences between the the debt pictures there, and is one more or less risky than the other? I think that could be a good start. I mean, I was talking last week about one of the maybe it was two weeks ago. I don't. Sometimes the weeks just blur these days. You know, one of the reasons I liked one of the stocks that I picked over the others is that they just didn't have much due in the next couple of years. And so that really gives you a leg up to be able to not only have a lot of free cash flow, but just imagine if they're smart about what they do with all this extra cash, 
in a time where businesses are really tightening the belt and pulling up. If you are, if you can have a business that has a bunch of cash and is ready to pounce on opportunities, take market share, really grow, and, and take opportunity of of industries that are not in good spots. That's where that's when you want. That's exactly why you buy stocks with great balance sheets because they're able to take advantage of times that are tough. And so when you look at when you're when you're going deeper and and you're starting to really go past the surface level numbers and and maybe trying to evaluate how how do I see this investment next year, the year after, and then how is that performance going to springboard into five years from now and ten years from now? And you know what's the overall picture when you look at a company like this, you can't ignore Netflix or Disney Plus or Hulu, you know, these are all stream the new streaming services that are taking market share from a lot of the cable companies. So that's that's a long-term factor too. Obviously a lot to think about, but th- this gives a good starting point. I think if you can get for me, I like to get a big picture idea. I like to get lately I've liked to get the coronavirus picture. And then what does a recovery look like? And then from there, then you get into the nitty gritty of the numbers and then maybe doing some industry comparisons on how, how, how is this going to perform against other companies and, and are we going to have enough liquidity? And then you maybe circle back again and look at, you know, what was the stock trading at and is this a fair price? And do I think I get a margin of safety from this? And then hopefully at that point, you haven't given yourself so many considerations that you've made your head spin, but you've gotten yourself at the place where you have a good understanding of the business. You you understand what the numbers mean today and, and what you'd like to see in the future. And then you just trust your convictions and go with it. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation and the answers to our questions. And thanks again for taking the time to write those into us. We really appreciate it. And we hope you guys get something useful out of it you can use on your investing journey. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.